Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So I am so excited uh, about tonight's show for two reasons. The first reason I am so excited um, about this episode is the, the one you're watching, the one you're listening to. This is the 100th episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. Um, when I started the show in 20, in the fall of 2016, I never thought I'd still be going. In fact, I told our CEO, uh, Andy McCabe, at the time, hey, I have this little idea for a, a diversity podcast so that I could do some extra programming and just kind of bypass some of the hurdles of getting diversity programming out there. Um, and, you know, we'll see how it goes for a few months. And if it doesn't work, then we'll just pretend I never did this. <laughs> we'll just let it fade close quietly into the night. Um, and so now here we are, a um, hundred uh, episodes and I covered, got, had a wonderful opportunity to talk to so many different people and cover so much content in the last five years. And I'm really just proud of the show. And I'm really proud that AAVMC has been um, so wonderful in helping me expand and grow the show over this time. So I want to thank all of our listeners and viewers for rocking with me and the association for the last five years. And we look forward to, can't even believe I'm saying this, a hundred more shows. <laughs> Not sure what kind of commitment I'm making here, but on a hundred more shows. So the second reason I'm excited about this episode stems from the fact that I have been trying to do this topic, a show on this topic, Muslims and Veterinary Medicine, for about a year now. Um, I put out calls for participants and volunteers, and I would hear crickets for months. Um, and so I'm so full of gratitude to my guests that have taken time from their very busy schedules um, uh, to talk about this particular life and identity intersection. So why don't we just dive right on in? I want to talk a little bit, give a little bit of facts about Islam. Islam is practiced by nearly 2 billion people around the world. For folks that are like into stats, that's roughly 24% of the global population. Islam is the second largest religion behind Christianity. Of course, it is one of the Abrahamic monotheistic religions. It is also the fastest growing religion in the world um, with projections that the total number of believers will equal the number of Christians by 2050. So we are just moving right along here. Now, it's unclear exactly how many Muslims uh, are also veterinarians or working in the veterinary profession um, as other types of health professionals. Um, I do know that I did a survey um, of veterinary students, faculty, and staff in 2017, and um, out of more than 4,300 respondents, only 11 people <laughs> indicated that they were Muslim. So, I'm guessing this is a very, very small population within the profession. Um, and, and with 11 people, that, that, that very small population can easily become invisible. And that's not okay. Um, that's not okay. This show has always been about raising awareness and shedding some light. So I'm really excited to welcome my three guests tonight to talk about being Muslim and vet med. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Hindatu Mohammed and veterinary students. Okay, Lena Harabi. <laughs> All right, great. And like, don't let me like mess it up like at the very end. Uh, <laughs> student Fahim Ilis Ilyas. Yes. Okay. All right. Welcome, 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 welcome. I'm so excited about this show. As you can tell, I'm like bouncing off the walls in my uh, imaginary kind of virtual office here. Why don't we dive right in? Uh, as always, is our custom on the podcast, I invite my guests to share a bit about themselves and do some self-introductions. Um, Hindatu, we will start with you. 
Oh, hello. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you virtually and same with you, Fahim and Lena. Assalamu alaikum to both of you. I'm just really happy to be here and to be a part of your 100th episode. I feel very special for that. Um, as uh, mentioned, my name is Ndati Mohammed. I'm a veterinarian. I am a veterinarian and practice owner at a clinic in Austin, Texas. Um, I was born in Nigeria, but my family moved to this country when I was about three years old, my father came to the States to pursue a PhD in education. And so at that time, our family moved here and, you know, it was intended to be a temporary sort of thing and, you know, how life happens. And so here we are many years later. Um, so yes, I uh, attended veterinary school at Cornell University. And then I, after that, did an internship in New Jersey and then practiced general practices for several years before ending up here in Texas as um, a practicing veterinarian and owner. So that's a little bit about me. Great, welcome and thank you so much. Lena, why don't we go to you? Sure thing. Um, thank you so much for having me as well. And it's super exciting to be on your 100th episode. Um, to give a little bit about myself, uh, my name is Lena. I'm 25 years old, and I'm a third-year student at Michigan State University right now. Um, I have an interest in pursuing wildlife medicine or pathology or academia. Which direction I take, I have no idea right now. <laughs> and I have four cats and a bull python, all have which have been my practice specimens throughout school. So I still have a lot to figure out, still have a long way to go. But so far, the experience has been amazing, and I'm happy to be on here with you guys. Wonderful. Welcome, welcome. And certainly, last but not least, um, and I have to say, it was needle in a haystack finding a male <laughs> to be on the show. So super welcome, Fahim. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much. Um, so hi, guys. My name is Fahim. Um, obviously, I'm Muslim. That's why I'm here. Uh, my family are originally from Pakistan, but I was born and raised here in England. Um, you can probably tell from the accent that um, I'm not from the States. Uh, I'm 23 years old. I went straight from school to university, and I'm now in my fifth and final year of vet science here at the Uni of Liverpool. Um, so I apologise if I look a little tired as well. It's 11pm at night here. Obviously, we've got a bit of a, a time difference thing going on. Um, but yeah, thank you, to, thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Oh, my goodness. Well, like, thank you so much for <laughs> taking time out of your sleep schedule to join us. So um, so let's dive on in. Um, so again, I did this study um, of the vet schools in 2017. Only 11 people <laughs> identified as Muslim in that survey. So, you know, it seems that would suggest um, that, you know, uh, students and professionals who identify as Muslim seem to be a pretty small population in, in veterinary medicine. And so, you know, does is this does this ring true to your experiences? Um, and Dr. Why don't we start with you? Yeah, you know, I, I was reflecting on uh, that before this 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 talk, and I realized that, you know, I don't think I've ever worked with another Muslim veterinarian uh, ever in my and I graduated in two thousand and seven, so I've been practicing for now almost you know fifteen years, and yeah, it definitely rings true. Uh, very infrequent um, working, very infrequent times have I seen other veterinary. Muslims that are, you know, sort of text assistant receptionist sort of support staff, but in terms of actual veterinarians, I've never. Now at the academia level, you certainly will see researchers that are veterinarians, but but I, I think it is accurate um, and certainly have lots of theories as to why that's true, but uh, that's definitely been my experience, you know, throughout my career. Yeah, yeah. Fahim, uh, so how about in England? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, um, definitely. So I think when I joined um, the Uni of Liverpool, uh, I was the only Muslim guy in all five years, unsurprisingly. So that's about 800 students, I think. Um, there was one Muslim girl in my year. And I think that was it. I think it was just the two of us out of the whole, the whole cohort. Um, and then now being a fifth year looking down, I know of one, maybe two tops uh, other Muslims in the younger years. Um, I know people from vet schools across England, and it's, it's very much the same story around there. Um, sort of one or two here and there. Um, I have all sort of five year groups, and then yeah, it's about it. Wow, Lena, Michigan. Yeah, There's a larger <laughs> population there. Like, 
Yeah, I think I know about maybe one or two other people, um, not in my year throughout all of the veterinary field, and that's indirectly. So I don't know anybody directly. Um, so I think that number is pretty accurate from what you got from your research. Wow. Wow. So yeah, let, let's dive in. And Hindatu, what are some of your theories? On, you know, why are there so few Muslims uh, pursuing the profession and in the profession? Well, I think at least, you know, and from my, so I should say I am a general practitioner. I do small animals. And so I work with dogs and cats. And so in my world, I am dealing exclusively with pets. And, you know, if you look at Muslims as a population, and I'm happy you mentioned that, you know, we are, we are everywhere. We are everywhere. And if you look at the global Muslim population, a large portion of them are in countries and areas where pet ownership is not in and of itself as popular as commonplace, right? And so that's, I think, one part of it is that you are, you are, you are dealing with a people coming from places that historically haven't had a large focus on animals as, as, as companions, as pets, certainly animals as, uh, you know, production for production use and for, for things for working animals. But so I think part of it is that, and I think the other part of it is to, um, at least for me, I don't know for him and Lena how you guys grew up, but in my family, you know, I grew up learning that you know dogs, for example, were haram in Islam. Like the, the, the dogs were not allowed to, to you know, they were not um, supported in the in, in Muslim. And I think I've, as I've gotten older, I've learned more. That's a little bit more of a nuanced position, but there is this belief um, and sort of uh, thought that uh, certain animals are not necessarily. Um, allowed in the religion. And I, I don't think that's true. And I think that there's lots of different, you know, hadith that you can read that will support one or other. But I think what is true for sure in the profession and the religion is that it's a religion that supports and encourages the, the humane treatment of all animals, right? And so I think that focusing on that as a Muslim veterinarian and really realizing that, you know, you can do this profession and still be true to your faith and to, to, your, to your religion and to your beliefs is really important. But I think that combination of where a lot of Muslims are coming from, you know, and also just some of the uh, uh, beliefs within the religion, uh, you know, I think contribute to that for sure. Sure. You know, so, I think even when I go back to Nigeria to, to talk to my, you know, my family, you know, they're always like, oh, you're a veterinarian. Come, let me have, let me take a look at this chicken. I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't know anything about chickens. And, you know, they're like, oh, okay, how about this goat? I'm like, no, also no, 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 okay. <laughs> so there is this feeling that like, for, for my family, at least I think my family thinks that I am a useless veterinarian because they're like, you can't actually help us with anything we want help with, you know, so that is definitely a challenge. Lena or Fahim, you want to uh, jump in? You know, what What are some theories? And how did your families react to the news that you wanted to be a veterinarian? Um, yes, this is this is really interesting. And I kind of wish there was a, a simple answer to it, uh, to be honest. Um, firstly, my family were, were very, very supportive of the idea. Um, I wouldn't be where I am now um, without them, basically. Um, but I think a large part of the reason is that it is this mindset found within the communities. Um, you get a lot of Muslim doctors, you get a lot of Muslim dentists. Um, there's people in these clinical fields, but like we've said, there's very, very few vets. And I think one of the comments that sort of gets thrown out there quite often is like, why not become a real doctor? Um, or like I've had like Muslims say to me, um, like, don't you think you're wasting your time like treating animals when you could be helping like people instead? Mm-hmm. Um, and I say it's interesting because there's no actual Islamic basis for that. Um, at all, uh, like Indatu was saying. And in fact, there's actually Islamic basis for the exact opposite. Um, so like we're told in the Quran and in like the Sunnah, so like the teachings and the and the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, that there's actually like benefits and, and rewards to helping animals. Um, and if I could just share like a little quick, a little, sure. quick hadith, a little story. So um, the Prophet, peace be upon him, was speaking to some people uh, and he was telling the story about a man. And he said the man was walking and he got really, really thirsty. Uh, and he came across the well. So he lowered himself down into the well. And, you know, he took a drink until he was kind of full and he quenched his thirst. And then as he's coming back out of the well, he saw a dog and the dog was panting and licking at the ground. Um, and the man sort of said to himself, oh, this dog is suffering with thirst, like just like I was. So he goes back down into the well um, and he doesn't have a container with him, doesn't have a bucket or anything. So he takes his shoe off and he fills his shoe with water and he comes out of the well and he gives the dog this shoe full of water and he, he lets the dog like have his fill. So he lets the dog quench his thirst as well. Um, 
And so the Prophet, peace be upon him, said that, that Allah, that God actually thanked this man um, and forgave his sins. And mm-hmm. the people that the Prophet وسلم, was telling his story to, um, they said to him, they said, Oh, Prophet of Allah, like peace be upon you, is there a reward for us serving the animals? And the Prophet, وسلم, peace be upon him, replied to them. And he said, yes, there is a reward for serving any living being. And so that's why I say it's actually interesting. Like Islamically, it's actually beneficial to have a job as a vet, right? Um, which obviously for us guys is, is a really amazing thing. But I think there's still some of those those misconceptions uh, within the community. Oh, that, that thank you for sharing that story. It's just it's beautiful, and it is that kind of that just basic respect for life, right? Um, yeah, Lena, anything to add? Yeah. So I guess first of all, my family and friends have been very supportive as well, and definitely wouldn't have gotten here without them. And I guess kind of a mix of what both um, Hindatu and Fahim was saying is that. Um, I think it's a mix of cultural pressure to pursue careers related to human medicine and development while there's a lack of understanding of, you know, the veterinary field and its broad disciplines that it has. I often hear it being reduced to, oh, you're just treating dogs and cats. But I also think that there's a lack of understanding of, you know, the depth of medical knowledge that's applied in the veterinary curriculum. So it's easy for many to underappreciate, you know, the skills required for such a field you know, where in reality, veterinarians are required to have a thorough understanding of, you know, anatomy, physiology, you know, pathophysiology of diseases and treatment and so much more. So I think it's that this field is very reduced to, you know, that simple statement of dogs and cats, you know, is that all you do? It's not real medicine. So I think it's, you know, that cultural misunderstanding and, you know, pressures. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It also, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, these are um, reasons that we hear lots of, you know, um, underrepresented or marginalized groups don't pursue the profession. And I think that, you know, a lot of times all of these underrepresented groups get kind of painted with the same brush. And part of it has to do with, you know, intersectionality, which we're going to talk about in in a couple of minutes, but, but, you know, this idea of, well, you know, this group doesn't have pets. So that's also why they don't go, you know, they don't get exposure to the veterinary profession. And oftentimes I have to remind people, I'm like, yeah, so having a pet is not always predictive of getting veterinary care, <laughs> right? Um, it's not always predictive. And and I always like my my soapbox um, example is, gee, I've been to meetings where all we talked about was why cat owners don't bring their cats to the vet, right? And so if we think that nobody else is owning cats, well, then, you know, again, drilling all the way down to the lowest common denominator, that means that there's a lot of white people with cats who are not also getting that care, right? Um, Because the rest of us apparently don't have cats, right? And and it's that kind of, um, you know, to to use um, Lena's um, description where we kind of boil down really kind of nuanced, complex issues into this, well, this is why this doesn't happen. And, and it's, it's never as simple as that, right? So what do you, um, and, and Lena, I'll go, um, go back to you, um, you know, what could the profession do better to make the profession more accessible, more attractive to um, Muslim students? I think just kind of going off what I said is that, well, first of all, there's a wide range of clubs at schools um, for minority groups, you know, whether it's Muslims or, um, you know, anyone underrepresented. These groups create opportunities for their members, whether it's a comp or, you know, somewhere to meet other people like them or to create that common ground for discussion and understanding. But another thing that these clubs do, such as, you know, diversity clubs, is bring in people to speak about you know, job opportunities for them or how they can excel in jobs in the future. So I think that this veterinary profession can take advantage of those clubs, you know, reaching out to them and having somebody, whether they're part of that minority group or not, speak to those students. And going back to my first point about many Muslims not pursuing this field is because of those misrepresentations of, you know, what this field is about. So I think offering somebody who can speak to them about, you know, what this field entails and, you know, the knowledge that you need to have for this field and what it is and what it's not so that they can develop, you know, their own understanding and not go off of, I don't want to do this field because of, you know, those preconceptions that they may have 
from, you know, whether it's their family telling them or their friends or society, they can make their own decisions off of a, you know, correct understanding. Sure, sure. Thank you. And then I'll go back to Fahim. I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit in the idea of of the clientele, right? So I've never worked with a veterinarian that's Muslim, but I've certainly seen many Muslim pet owners, right? That's they they exist, right? And so I think even the uh, the acknowledgement of that that and, and so programs like this, for example, that tried to highlight this population, uh, really let us know that you know we are. We are um, we are not serving this population of Muslim pet owners well if we assume that there are no Muslim veterinarians, or if we don't, you know, take take active steps as a profession to acknowledge this religion, which is, as you mentioned, the second largest in the in the world, fastest growing. You know, this is this is a population that is coming to us, you know, for services, and we owe them that ability to see them and to also to acknowledge, you know, their, their cultures and their traditions. And so, I mean, I think. Uh, it can be so simple. I mean, I think even, you know, within the veterinary field, uh, even something as simple as acknowledgement of like Muslim holidays on a calendar. You know, these are these are very, very small things you can do to say, hey, we see you. You know, this is, you know, uh, you know, Eid Mubarak to our Muslim pet, you know, community, you know, owners out there. Anything like that, I think that just lets people know that we are seeing. Because I think part of what is so challenging about being a Muslim veterinarian is not so much for me personally, um, the uh, anti-Islamic sentiment is rather the complete erasure. It's the, the sort of the being not seen at all, you know, having people say to you, Merry Christmas, as if like everyone celebrates Christmas, you know, um, having there being no acknowledgement of anything besides this sort of, uh, you know, Christian faith or any, you know, besides this very, very limited, I think, you know, um, uh, cultural background. So I, I think a very, very important first step is, of course, acknowledge and then to amplify voices. And then, of course, you know, reach out to people and just say, hey, you know, we know that that you're out there and we support you and we, we see you, you know. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for that, especially, you know, holidays and those types of things. I remember um, it was a few years ago, I believe, that Ramadan fell at a time that, you um, coincided with most academic calendars Mm -hmm. finals week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was kind of (laughs) crazy. Like in the sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, people were like, oh yeah, well, you know, um, well, I mean, they're going to be free. You got to just take your exams. And it was like, well, can you offer exams in the evening? You know, is it really okay to expect folks to fast? Um, and you know, if they have uh, uh, a an exam at four o'clock, and it's May, and it's not going to get dark until eight, you know, right. like does that create a disadvantage? If I'm hungry, yes, yes, it does create a disadvantage, right? Um, that is is distinct um, and and systemic rather than like I am, you know, participating in my faith tradition, something that is very, very important to me. And this system, again, it's not even that it's anti, it's just, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think the analogy I always tell people is, could you ever imagine having exams fall on Easter Sunday or on Christmas day? You never would. Right. And so just that, that basic like assumption that well, we, we honor these holidays and these traditions, but we don't even think about these other ones, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fahim. Yeah, um, so I think like, like the guy said, sort of breaking down the, the misconception and things by having conversations like this one, uh, it'll see very, very important. Um, I think the other big reason that sort of generally within the profession, here in the UK, anyway, obviously I can't really speak for America. Um, but I think majority of the profession comes from like city backgrounds and and probably grown up on a farm or they were riding horses as a child and now they're thinking okay I'll become a vet Um, and I think that plays a part in sort of the the lower number of Muslims right because I think most Muslims here are living in cities they're not really living in the countryside they're not riding horses on the weekends and that sort of thing and so I think something the profession can do is sort of tap into those cities those lower socio-economic areas Um, and then just kind of showing young Muslims that there are people out there that are doing it um, that are like them as well um, but they're not the only ones and not make it like a weird thing to see a Muslim vet like not make it such like a oh my gosh there's a Muslim vet there um, because it shouldn't really be like that right um, but yeah I think from the profession's point of view I think definitely looking at like like I said more inner city kids um, low socioeconomic backgrounds 
And I think if you get more of those sorts of students, then you'll naturally get more, more Muslims as well coming through. Great, great point, great point. So, you know... Sorry, another thought no, ahead, I just please, had please. actually is just, um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of outreach, you know, pairing even with connecting with local mosques, you know, masjids in the area to try to say, hey, you know, you know, we would like to come and talk to your youth group about veterinary medicine. We'd like to talk about the profession and really to, you know, Lena brought this point up, point up earlier, but not just highlighting uh, the general practice work that a lot of people do, but also highlighting the research, the laboratory focus, yeah. the, you know, the, the specialty work, the, 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 the many different ways there's, you know, there's veterinarians, of course, that do, you know, uh, industry there, there's veterinarians that do corporate, you know, veterinary work. There's, there's so many ways in which we serve the population. And um, so perhaps, Pairing or reaching out to local mosques to to sort of talk with their population about what they do would be another way to do outreach. Great, great suggestion. I mean, and it's something that you know. Again, there's this, there is this erasure piece because this is something. I mean, going to other houses of, of worship are, is, of course, something that we think about doing. Um, but there's, uh, you know, this, this, it's almost like a, it's a blind spot, right? Oh, why, why wouldn't we go to the mosque to ask? Like, that's, again, we're talking like, <laughs> these are not hard things to do, right? I always tell people all the time, you know, if you're really committed to diversity, it's, it's not that hard. <laughs> it's really not that hard. The people are there if you are intentional about finding them, right? So one of the things I also want to talk about, and I mentioned it, alluded to it earlier, is this idea of intersectionality and Muslim identity, right? And so, um, like every other religion, Muslims can be any race, any gender, any ethnicity. Um, but of course, because we have a very narrow, stereotypical view of what or who a Muslim is, it can be really difficult for folks to kind of wrap their heads around the identity as well as wow it's different sizes shapes shape i'm like this again not hard <laughs> it's not hard <laughs> we come in all flavors right and so you know um what has your experience been you know in terms of when people kind of hear or find out or you know assume or whatever you know how do we kind of talk about this intersectional piece that it is you know, like, let's take the stereotype and set it over here or just, you know, drop kick it all the way out the door um, and really kind of really talk about, you know, Muslim identity. You know, who wants to weigh in on that? I'll go on that one. Um, I think in my experience, I honestly, now that I think back about it, I haven't had too much problems kind of discussing intersectionality. But I think that also comes with, you know, I'm from Michigan and there's, you know, I'm in an area near Detroit where there's a large population here. So people are used to kind of seeing that, you know, various races, you know, colors, ethnicities that are part of, you know, this religion. So I personally haven't had a hard time explaining it, but I do find that sometimes, you know, when you're talking to someone who isn't that familiar with the religion and you're explaining, you know, you know, Two people can look completely different and still be from this religion. They're kind of like, oh, really? And then it's kind of the end of the conversation right there. So thankfully, it hasn't been a hard discussion. Um, but, you know, I know that there's, you know, some out there that may have a hard time grasping it. Um, but that's been my experience with it so far. Yeah. Any comments? And that too, or Fahim? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak especially... Um, there, there's two things that I think about when this topic and one one is, uh, you know, a uh, couple summers ago when George Floyd was mur murdered, you know, there was a lot of discussion, of course, about Black Lives Matter. And one thing that made me so, so happy and thankful was that my mosque came out with a statement, you know, specifically, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and, you know, kind of coming out in, in, in support of it. And I think that was really important just because, you know, there are Muslims from all over the world that look all sorts of different ways. And I think, you know, even within the religion, you know, like any religion, we have our own issues, right, with, with how we all get along, right, you know, yep. <laughs> with some uh, differences amongst uh, our people. But, but I think having that support, you know, feeling that myself as a Black woman was seen and supported by my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters around this issue was so, so important. And I think, you know, this piece is important, especially because people do have this very, very stereotypical view of, 
of Muslims because I don't cover my hair. A lot of people are surprised to learn that I'm a Muslim, even though I have the last name Muhammad, which is like, you cannot get a more Muslim name than Muhammad. <laughs> it's not possible, right? And so, you know, I mean, I think in this country in particular, we have this very, very narrow and, you know, unfortunately, lately negative, right, view of, of, uh, of Islam and, and of Muslims. And so I think it's really important for those of us who are Muslim to be really vocal and advocating for not only our religion, but also just how we don't have to all be the same. No one expects Christians to be the same. No one expects Jews to be the same. No one expects Hindus or, you know, or Buddhists to be the same. And so we, we should also be owed that same uh, grace. And I think, you know, the other sort of uh, experience that for me made that really apparent was I lived in New York city during the nine 11 um, mm-hmm. attack. And that was a really, really uh, difficult time to be Muslim, honestly, because uh, I think that's when a lot of the Islamophobia really came to a head in my in my mind. Um, but that's also when it, it when it became even more important for me as a Muslim to really be vocal and just you know proud of and to to really try to be a um, ambassador for the for the religion and it, and it also just is to show that again we we look all different types of ways you know so I am. A, you know, I'm an African Muslim, right? I'm a black Muslim. I'm a female. I'm a Muslim. You know, there's so many there. Yeah. I am Muslim and so many other things. Right. And so I think uh, the more that we share that with people, the more that um, they can appreciate, understand that better, too. Wonderful. Ayim. It sounds like the, uh, sort of the, the story of the U.S. is much the same over here as it is in the U.K. as well, actually. Um I think when someone mentions a Muslim in the UK, people kind of think of like someone like me, like a Pakistani, um, or they might think of like an Arab. Um, but I guess people don't realize that like there are more Muslims in like Indonesia, for example, than any other country. Or you've got like 50 Muslim majority countries like in the world, like Niger, Senegal, all the Africans, you got Kosovo, um, the Maldives. Like, like you said, like there's Muslims from literally all walks of life. Um, whereas I think, yeah, say in the UK and by the sounds of the US as well, we're quite narrow minded in, in who we think or what we think a Muslim should look like. Um, or who they should be like. Um, and yeah, so I think like everyone else has said, obviously, but we've got our, our like core principles, right? Um, the things that make us all Muslim, that unite us together. Um, but we've also got very, very different identities as well, like our sort of cultural identities that, that come alongside that. Yeah, yeah, important. Um, so Hindatu uh, just kind of alluded to, well, didn't allude, she talked a bit about her experience um, post 9-11, but, oh, these last couple of years have been... <laughs> Haven't been much better. <laughs> Haven't been much better for a lot of different groups, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, I know here, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and you can imagine that's been fun. And, um, right, and, you know, certainly I have heard, and um, certainly in the last five years, spikes um, of anti-Islamic rhetoric that I probably hadn't heard as, loudly it was always there but i hadn't heard it as loudly as um i had like shortly after 9-11 these last five years um certainly that rhetoric has has um sadly um you know increased but you know i guess i'm i'm kind of curious about your experiences within the profession certainly as students fahim and, and lena um i'm hoping oh my goodness please like have good experiences no pressure but because i want you to live in your truth but but <laughs> otherwise i'm going to be on the phone uh, tomorrow like you know, calling some people like what is going on on your campus so you know what has been you know your experiences at liverpool um at michigan state um, in particular, as students, um, as Muslims. Fahim, we'll start with you. Um, so I've got to say, I, I've been very lucky, um, to be honest with you, you'll be, you'll be glad to hear. Um, so sort of within the university, within the veterinary profession, I haven't had any anti-Islamic rhetoric um, or anything like that. I've kind of had the whole like, you know, farmers that have decided the two syllables in my name are too difficult for them to learn and they kind of just make noise at me or, or so they put the double in there and then kind of change the rest of the name and it's, it's good enough. Um, and in, in first year, I, you know, I, had, I mean, it's never happened again. And I guess from, from their point of view, I mean, if you never lectured an, an Asian guy in your class and you suddenly see one sitting in front of you, you know, first term, a lot of kids get lost to go to the 
wrong rooms, you can kind of see how it happened. Um, but in terms of anything like truly Islamophobic, um, I've, I've not had anything. Um, not to say it doesn't happen. Um, I'm sure there are probably students out there with, with differing experiences. And I think I'm being 100% honest, probably being a guy has has helped. Um, I'm sure that a lot of like the Muslim sisters, especially those that probably wear hijab and are going on farms and things like that to rural areas that haven't been exposed to to as many Muslims. Um, I think they probably have heard, they've had different experiences. Um, blessed me personally, so alhamdulillah, thank God uh, I've, I've been okay. Ah, and so again, here we are with the intersectional piece and gender and you know, uh, yeah, thing, folks will say things to women that they won't say to men because of the perceived consequences of saying said thing to, to men. So, Lena, what's your experience been like? Let's put MSU oh. on blast. <laughs> Thankfully, only good things to say about MSU. Um, I haven't had any bad experiences myself, right, um, up until this point. Um, and I think that one of the things that the college does that I do really appreciate is that they have a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion talks and discussions so that, you know, people are able to voice their concerns, opinions, or even just a platform to be able to have those, you know, discussions about, okay, we're not the same, but let's find common ground or to have that platform to kind of educate people about, you know, what, what, um, you know, their experiences are like for, and that goes for any minority, any, you know, demographic group or socioeconomic background. Um, so I think that's one of the things that has been done really well at MSU. Um, and I know I'm a woman, but <laughs> I haven't, you know, felt that, you know, I haven't had any anti-Islamic rhetoric towards myself yet. So, you know, we'll see how the future goes when it comes to, you know, working in rural areas yeah. or in practice. Okay, good. So, Sandati, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't, thankfully, I'm really happy to hear that, by the way, for both of you about your schools. And I, I had the same experience in school. I, I would say since, you know, graduating, um, I did, you know, I had a, a client once ask the receptionist, you know, you know, they were like, oh, Dr. Muhammad, I just want to make sure she's a Christian. And she was like, well, and the receptionist, of course, was like, well, you know, so none of your business also, you know, <laughs> but, but that's not, if that's a requirement for you, you can absolutely go somewhere else. And so I think it's, it is super important, you know, when encountering maybe not necessarily outright Islamophobia, but, you know, microaggressions, which we all do, it's really important to have supportive people around you, right, that are going to, so, you know, that person was like, absolutely, this is not up for discussion, like, you know, you, you are coming here to have her expertise as a doctor, and that's all that matters, that's all that should matter to you, and if it, you know, if that's something that's important to you, then you should, you should seek care elsewhere, you know, um, you know, I think, um, the the other thing, and I you know we talked about it earlier. It's, it's less again. It's less the actual aggression. It's more just the like you don't exist. You know, it's more mm-hmm. the like the complete erasure that I think is is hard. And and you know the good news about I think uh, and especially for me, I'm living in Texas. And it's a very Christian area, right? It's a very mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I think that it, it becomes a good teaching opportunity, a good teachable moment when people say to me like Merry Christmas, and I say, Well, actually, I don't celebrate Christmas. You know, and they they are sort of uh, surprised. Amazing that people are still surprised to hear this, but you know. Um, it becomes a good opportunity to discuss, you know, what that, you know, what, why, and, and hope that the next time, instead of assuming that we can say to someone, happy holidays or happy new year, or, you know, happy Merry Christmas, if you celebrate, like just trying to help them leave with that understanding that not everybody has the same beliefs and values that they have, you know, is important. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So um, I do want to talk a bit more about education um, for a couple of minutes and, um, I know Michigan State actually was one of the first schools that that created a space for reflection um, and prayer um, for the vet school college community. Um, and, um, you know, more schools now are creating these types of spaces where, you know, they are certainly multi-purpose spaces, but they are very specific for you know, um, things like uh, opportunities for quiet meditation, reflection, prayer, those kinds of things instead of, you know, uh, okay, so yeah, you can go do that in the bathroom and come on back. It's kind of almost, you know, the similar piece of like breastfeeding, right? And how we have these things. Oh, yes, sure. Please 
go feed your baby <laughs> in the bathroom kind of, um, you know, kind of situation. So, um, so I do know that, that MSU has one, certainly a number of other institutions um, have that. Fahim, I saw you had, a, you, you had a raised eyebrow, like, really? Wow. So I'm guessing you think this is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> definitely a good idea um that's actually yeah amazing mashallah um i think a lot of muslims can relate to that issue of like trying to find like a quiet corner of like the library or something called just like a patch of grass outside and and kind of like a portable prayer mat and that sort of thing trying to find a space to pray in um so yeah 100 percent a good idea i think a prayer removes some of that stress right and that worry over practicing your religion it just makes it that much easier um and that much more of like a, a nice environment for for sort of all muslims in it yeah 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 so uh, we'll be sending this to uh, Dean Lund from North Carolina State is um, uh, about to take over, if he hasn't already, the, um, the deanship at uh, Liverpool. So, you know, we'll <laughs> make sure he's intent. Yes. One of the other slide this on into his email box. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that certainly didn't exist when I was at Cornell. But what a way to, to again to be seen. What a way to 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 make yourself feel seen and and supported. Yeah, that's incredible. Way to go, Michigan State. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lena, did you have any comments? Yeah, I'm gonna have to go check those rooms out. I think I've been inside too long since. <laughs> COVID. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think they're creating those spaces are like a great idea because they offer, you know, not just an area for like Muslim students, but you know, various student populations, Christians who pray, um, anyone who just needs to, you know, get away, sit in the quiet, just wind down, you know, do their thing after a long and hectic day, which is a lot of those days when you're in vet school or any grad school. So I think that a non-disruptive, peaceful spot is very much needed, <laughs> no matter the purpose. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the fact that, that for some students, they may have never seen this <laughs> this uh, this room because of COVID. Wow, that I hadn't it, it didn't even register with me until you you said that. So um, so if you're on campus, uh, Dr. Gosi, Dr. Hilda Brew, and she will direct you to, <laughs> to that location. <laughs> So um, what kinds of other things, you know, can can we do? And, and certainly there was a question from the chat that we're, I'm going to um, also pose to you all. But, you know, what kinds of other things can colleges and the profession writ large do to make veterinary medicine more hospitable and certainly more accessible to, um, to Muslims um, everywhere? I'm going to lead, lead with the uh, with the prayer rooms because I think that that's a that's a really good idea that should be implemented in lots of places. Um, I think it's it's little things to be honest with you. Um, like beard covers was one for me, for example. Um, the they didn't have any beard covers, so I wanted to go into. I'm quite interested in surgery because that want to go into theatre. Um, and never having to sort of layer masks over my beard as well to kind of kind of cover it. Um, so yeah, little things like that. Um, I think having like long sleeve clothing, um, this is something that Liverpool's done recently. They've written sort of long sleeve clothing into like the workwear policy um, for students so that any like Muslim students, Muslim women that didn't want to cover, didn't want to show their arms, um, they're sort of now, a, they don't need to go against any regulations to do that. It's kind of, it's written in there for them to, to cover their arms. Um, so yeah, I think little things like that. Um, and a lot of them just by having a conversation with say the few Muslims that, that are on campus or are part of the uni, um, and they'll often sort of pick up on these things. It doesn't take much for the uni to, to make those little changes. Um, but yeah, I think the little things that just make everybody more comfortable. I think flexibility around, um, you know, just again, uh, you know, we talked about the holidays earlier, you know, it's challenging because again, you know, our two sort of uh, most important holidays aren't always on the same day, right? They're going to change year by year. And so it's going to be hard, like unlike Christmas, which you always know, December 25th, you know, Eid for us is going to be different every year. And so I think allowing flexibility of whenever this holiday occurs for you, you can have time off to celebrate it. You know, just something as simple as that, which requires a bit of an accommodation on the part of the, you know, the employer or even the school, but just shows again that, you know, we, we support you, we see you and we want to help you feel welcome here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see, you know, when folks are building out their academic calendars, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody, I mean, but, but acknowledging that this is something that's happening during this time, maybe that's not the best exam week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe. 
uh, you know. And it won't um, always be possible for everyone, but even acknowledging right. that for you, this particular student, you know, everyone else might take their exam that week, but you, you may not be able to, and that's okay. You know? Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Making it okay. Right. Lena, did you want to weigh in? I kind of touched on it before, yeah. but the, you know, those in DEI talks, the diversity, equity, and inclusion talks, I think that discussions can go a long way because you realize, you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with, you know, your personal life or you may not, you may not be familiar with theirs. So I think having that platform to kind of talk it out and say, oh, hey, like you do that too, or you feel that way too. So I think that's, you know, not something that's hard to implement, whether it's required or something that's extracurricular is I think a great way for, you know, all students of all backgrounds to kind of, you know, connect and, you know, get to know each other a little bit more. I think a lot, you know, discussions can go a long way. Great. Thank you. I'd like to put a plug in for, too, you know, providing opportunities for education for, you know, other veterinary students and not requiring people like Fahim or Lena to do the educating, right? Not having them do the lifting of, do the, do the work of educating their peers, you know, unless they would like to. But, you know, if we're going to invite people to help us learn more about this religion, let it please be someone who's not already here. Let it please be someone whose job it is to come and teach other people, you know, um, yes. guest speakers and what have you. Yes, yes, that is such an incredible, incredibly um, important point that, you know, we have to be really careful not to burden people to, you know, do what they're there to do and all of this other stuff, right? Um, it's okay to go do your own work. I promise you Google has good resources, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> as a place to start, right? As a place to start, mm-hmm. but also for institutions, Uh, Also, I'm a firm believer in this, that if you want folks to do this work, this is this is work that requires also compensation. Mm -hmm. Right. Like It's also compensation. It's one thing if you want to do it and that's fine, but it it should be compensated work because it is important. It is um, head and heart work, as I tell people. And head and heart work is as as demanding as physical labor. It's just different. Right. It's just different. Um, but the term, the, the toll that it takes on one um, is, is very similar to, um, you know, a pretty intense physical um, exertion. So um, there was a chat um, on the live stream. Uh, shout out to Ontario Veterinary College. Um, thank you so much for the question. The question is, are there any issues related to the DBM curriculum, um, such as maybe swine handling or, or being alone with clients of opposite gender um, that, you know, require accommodation for Muslim students and professionals? So um, um, did you or do you need accommodations? So I don't mind addressing the, uh, yeah. the sort of the swine handling one, um, just because it's literally the most common question uh, that I get asked from Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and my responses have just become the same every time. Now it seems to do the trick. I can operate on a pig as long as I don't take a bite out of it halfway through. <laughs> and as, as ridiculous as it sounds, uh, that's that's the truth. Um, there's nowhere in the Quran. Um, there's nothing that teaches us as Muslims to to do anything wrong to pigs to harm them in any way. Um, they're still one of God's creatures. Um, like I said, we just can't eat them. That's a great answer. It's a fantastic answer. <laughs> um, I think going off of his point, also um, when it comes to you know treating swine or you know anything that you may get questioned about. I think that as a professional, this is, you know, it's a job, it's a, you know, your duty, your responsibility to do that. And I think, you know, when you say it that way, it's, you know, I'm not doing this for fun. I'm not, you know, going against my beliefs, you know, this is my job. And, you know, we have an oath to serve, we have an oath to protect. And, you know, by not treating a certain patient, you know, we're kind of disobeying that oath. We're kind of, you know, disrespecting that patient and, you know, what we, went to school for, what we're learning about, what we chose to be our career. I love that you tied it to the veterinary oath. And this is something I know for in my work that I'm really um, trying to get people to do more that, um, you know, this is, this is, uh, it is a profession, you're, you're educated in it, but it's, it's, there is this you know, when you take an oath, there's a large, there's a larger, deeper commitment, at least when I think of an oath, right? And so, um, 
yeah, this idea that you are there to to serve and that, you know, I think that that one of the things that you both alluded to is that there are these kind of stereotypes, preconceived misconceptions and and all of these things that um, we get hung up on. But at the end of the day, the oath is not inconsistent with your faith practice. It's I mean, if it was that inconsistent with your faith practice, I don't think you would be on the show or in vet school or practicing, right? I mean, like, you, you know, you, you make it work. Right. And I think a lot of, you know, things are not black and white, you know, just to make them um, super out there example. If someone, yeah. you know, if there's a something on the street and they're, you know, bleeding out or something, you're not going to say, oh, you know, because so-and-so goes against, you know, what I would do in a normal situation, I'm going to avoid it. You know, I think when it, I don't know if that makes sense or not, <laughs> but you know, nothing's black and white. And when it comes to a profession, you have a job and there's exceptions. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so uh, I want to ask just a few more questions as we start to, to um, move to the wrap up. So many. Can I, can I actually say one more thing too about this godly combination? It's more so, you know, ask. You can always ask because there will be some students that may want a particular accommodation. So I think, again, just going, I can kind of say this all day long, but to, to, to acknowledge people and to, to let them know that you are seeing them, you know, you can ask, is there, is there any particular you know, accommodation that we could do for you to support your faith here in this, in this institution? I think that's just a, an easy way to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, that also um, in asking, it, it's really important for folks to understand the ask is not um, is is not anti-Islamic. It's not racist. It's not sexist. Like it's if it is a good faith inquiry, <laughs> in order to create a more inclusive atmosphere for learning, practice, working, whatever. That's a good thing. Ask the question. <laughs> How can we support you? Is yeah. Yes. Very few people will be offended by that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great. Um, so, uh, so affinity groups, a number of affinity groups, um, certainly in the last couple of years, have emerged. Um, do you think that uh, you know eventually there might be, if there's not already, because I searched high and low, but I don't know if the eleven of you have gotten together to create an affinity group. <laughs> well, Fahim and Lena are going to start a club after this meeting, so we are. No, no, I'm <laughs> But do you see, you know, um, uh, you know, um, a uh, an opportunity maybe at, at some point for an affinity group for Muslim veterinary professionals? I think the opportunity is there. It's if a club or something affinity group wants to be started, it can. I think the problem is kind of what we're talking about, that very small population. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think with, you know, outreach and education, like what we're doing right now, this talk and you know, if and when more kind of Muslims join the field, then there will be an affinity group eventually, hopefully. (laughs) Um, So I think with continued programs, there hopefully will be something in the future. Great, great, great. All right. Any other comments on the affinity group? (laughs) Yeah, I think we're a ways from that. (laughs) But it would be be wonderful. It would be a wonderful goal. Yeah, we, we had this idea uh, at Liverpool um, and basically we then realised that there was, yeah, like three of us and we're like, was not really much of a group, is it, at that point? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like like the other two said, I think some some point in the future, why not? Um, so it's always, you know, the opportunity will sort of always be there. It's only going to get bigger, hopefully. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's nice to have a group where people will have shared experiences and kind of, kind of come together and support each other, yeah. Great. And I will say with the advent now of Zoom, you know, it's much more possible, right? You you may only have two, you know, in Liverpool, but we, you know, you have to combine that with the two in Texas and the one in Iowa, you know, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you have a quorum. <laughs> right. Right. Wonderful. So I've just got two more questions. And this is, um, I'm really looking for um, kind of your advice to um, future future students and, and colleagues um, or existing uh, students and colleagues, um, what are one or two things um, you would like young Muslim students who may be interested in veterinary medicine to know? 
Um, I guess I can go off of, you know, speaking to a population that kind of what we're talking about before that isn't pursuing this field because of, you know, whether it's cultural beliefs or family, community, society, that this is just treating dogs and cats. So going off of that, I think that the one piece of advice I would offer is to get to know the field, you know, understand the best amount of work that you can do in this area and the holistic impact that you can make on not just animals, but humans, the environment. Um, you can work as a general practitioner, you know, you can specialize as a cardiologist, you can go into dentistry, you know, ophthalmology, there's so many different fields. You can find yourself in public health, environmental health. So when, you know, when you do the research, when you really understand the field, it becomes more than helping dogs and cats. It becomes, you know, helping their human counterpart, helping the environment, helping, you know, public health if you choose that um, field, depending on the area of interest. So in summary, understand the positive impact of the veterinary field and don't just let it be reduced to that statement. Um, you know, create your own narrative and understanding and don't go off of, you know, what others have to tell you or degrade you for <laughs> your choices. Powerful. One or two things? I think that's it. Um, if, it's, if it's the job for you, then, then go for it, I think, is the advice. Um, don't let anybody else stop you. Um, don't shy away from it because you don't see people like you, you know, say, oh, there's no one like me doing it, so I'm not going to do it because then it, it becomes the same for the next generation, right? They're not going to see anybody like them doing it um and yeah and i think it breaks down those misconceptions like like i said today like it's a good islamic thing to do so if anybody is trying to sort of tell you otherwise then educate them um kind of show them that actually just helping animals you know putting to one side the fact that you're also helping people at the same time even if we kind of ignore that fact just helping animals themselves is a, is a good islamic thing to do um so i think for young muslims out there for anyone that's telling you that that's not the case uh, or that it's the wrong thing to do then hit them with the facts hit them with the facts and that's it yeah, nothing really to add. It's a noble profession. It is a profession that is very much aligned with your faith and, uh, you know, and beliefs and also uh, one that is just really important for, for the world. And I know that, you know, veterinarians probably ourselves need to do a better job of talking up how important we are for the world. <laughs> yeah. We do so much to help everyone. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there's no more noble profession. Well, okay. Teachers, maybe, but yeah, <laughs> I'll give it to the teachers and the doctors, <laughs> the medical doctors, but we're, we're very important. And so, so yeah, very just, important. just really, really supporting. I think Lena, Lena touched on this really well, just the diversity within our profession mm -hmm. and just the importance of this work, the importance of this work. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, and then my last question is what are the one or two things that you want you like other members of the veterinary profession and community to know about Muslim veterinarians and veterinary professionals? We're just like you. <laughs> we really are. We really are just like you. You know, we uh, I, I, I guarantee we have a lot of the same beliefs, truthfully, that, as, as you do. But but we are you know, we are here because we love animals uh, and or we love and want to support and advocate for animals. You know, we are here because we are committed students. We are here because we are hardworking individuals. We are here because, you know, we are, we are just like you. We are just like you. We just happen to, you know, say different things when we pray. We happen to eat different things. We happen to, you know, but um, we're, we're really not that different. And, um, and so, so I'd like for them to know that we are, you know, we're all part of the same veterinary team. I think what I would have to say and kind of what Hidatu said earlier is that the question is never wrong to ask. Um, <laughs> you know, if you see someone that's Muslim, go up and ask a question and, and, you know, don't, you know, create those, you know, your own uh, beliefs and your own, you know, image rather than going off what the media says instantly. Um, you know, I have learned a lot personally about asking other people about what they believe or their cultural differences. And, I've been able to correct misconceptions that I've had that I didn't even know I have just by asking those questions. So I, I think that's one of the most important things to do. Yeah. Fahim? Uh, I think exactly what Hindatu and Lina have said. Um, we're just, we're normal people. Um, we might not drink alcohol. We might, you know, be fasting every now and then, or we might pop out, uh, pop out of the room at lunch breaks to go and pray. Um, but sort of other than that, we're, we're just like the rest of the veteran professionals. Um, I think what Lena said about asking questions, again, I just echo that sentiment. So in school, I feel like I used to get loads of questions. Um, and then at uni now, people almost seem almost like scared to ask, like they're worried about causing a or something. 
Um, but I think like we've all said, if it's a legitimate question, um, it's sort of the right time and place to ask it as well. And you're asking it in sort of a polite and appropriate manner. Um, yeah, then then go for it. Um, but yeah, I think otherwise we're, we're just we're just normal people. Uh, they're just like us. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's like a commercial. There's like a commercial. Yeah, Muslim veterinarians. They're just like us. <laughs> just like us. Right. Um, well, I just really want to thank each of you for taking um, your time tonight, especially you, you. It is very, very, very late in the UK and Liverpool. So I am very grateful that you have um, were able to join us. And I mean, to Hindatu, to Fahim, Lena, thank you so much. I am deeply honored that you've, um, you know, participated in this show and this episode. And yes, it is the 100th episode. So it is, this will be one of my favorite uh, shows um, and, and certainly in my top three. And I just, can't express enough gratitude that I am, um, you know, for you because I, I really have been trying to put together this show for a very long time. <laughs> thank you for so having thank you. us all. It's a great experience. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. And just to advocate for the need, you know, I think even though there are not many of us in the profession or in the schools, you know, I think as a profession, we need to try to do whatever we can to support the well-being and mental health of every single one of us. And so you know, whatever we can do to reach everyone is, is so important. So thank you for being a part of that. That's just really important. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been another episode, the 100th episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion Yay. on Air. Yay! Yay. To my guests, <laughs> Lena, Fahim, and Hindatu, thank you again so much for joining me. Uh, to our viewers and listeners, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and share it with another veterinary professional. Um, be sure to also like our Facebook page, AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you again. Mm-hmm.